Greetings, friends. It is the weekend of Sunday, August the 22nd, and today we close, we finish out our study in Hebrews. We've been going through the book of Hebrews these last months, really, and trying to glean, trying to delve into this really rich, rich book. You know, the closing word of this letter is, it's very practical, it's, and it's crowded with a lot of helpful things, like a lot of the, the book is, and this unknown writer, this unknown author felt, felt like, very much like, I guess, the sentiment of this lyric that I have found, and, and it says this, there was a young poet in Japan whose poetry no one could scan. When told it was so, she replied, yes, I know, but I try to get as many words in the last line as I can. So in this last chapter, the writers tried to squeeze in every bit that they can in the way of practical application. And in this chapter, as throughout the whole letter, it's evident that God is not interested in religion. And this may come as a surprise to a lot of us, but God is not primarily interested in religion, but in life. God recognizes that life is lived in segments, like, like an orange or in layers, like, a lun- like an onion. You see, pre- people have social lives, a business life, a sexual life, a school life, etc. And the believer, the Christian, finds that for them, life falls into two main categories. Their contacts with the world and their contacts with the body of Christ, the church. Their life then is divided between the world and the church. And, and I do not mean that, by, that a division in time, such as uh, Monday through Saturday for the world and Sunday is the only day for Jesus. I'm not talking about what I'm, what I'm talking about, re- rather, are the relationships that Christians must have with two kinds of people, that every believer must have with two kinds of people, the world and then believers. And the letter closes with some helpful words about both. And there's a section on the life in the world and then one on the life in the body. And these two magnificent verses on life lived at the center. So let's take the first section of life in the world. I'm reading from chapter 13 of Hebrews, verses 1 through 6. Again, reading from the NIV version. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison, and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexual immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper and I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? So here's this very striking commentary on Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That is the Christian's calling. That is the calling of all of us as believers is to not be conformed to the world, but to be transformed in the midst of it. You know, the Christian must live their life in touch with the world. And there's a dangerous and arguably a terrible philosophy which has been widespread among the millennia, among 
believers, that Christians were in, intended to isolate themselves from the world, to draw lines of demarcation, huddle behind them, towering walls that would exclude them from the activities, from the thoughts and the attitudes of the world. Well, that's wrong. The New Testament clearly declares it is wrong. It's anti-Christian. It's anti-scriptural. It's against the command of God. The Lord has told us to be in the world and has sent us out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Though we might be in a hostile environment, believers are still expected to live in touch with the world, but they themselves are to be different. That's the point. That's the separation that the Bible speaks of. Come out from among them and be separate in the King James, 2 Corinthians 6, 17. It does not mean physical isolation, but it means Christian attitudes in the midst of the world are going to be different. And now the passage we have is the, the difference is outlined in, 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 in a couple amazing ways. So first of all, Christians are to have an open house to strangers. You know, this is something that the world doesn't know very much about. The non-believer is content to entertain their friends perhaps a very limited circle. But believers are actually to entertain other Christians. That's what it that's the part that means let brotherly love continue. But don't stop at this, the writer of Hebrews admonishes. Do not neglect also to show hospitality to strangers. A Christian home is to be the center of hospitality where strangers and non-believers are to have access. Let me repeat that. The Christian home is to be a center of hospitality where strangers and non-believers have access. So obviously this calls for initiative on the part of believers. Strangers, you see, do not come around knocking at our door asking for an invitation to a meal. We have to assume the initiative. And the type of ministry we're talking about here has a, has a beneficiary effect on us as well. The writer of Hebrews reminds us that thereby some have entertained angels unawares in some translations. Perhaps they are referring to the experience of Abraham when three guests came to his home and, and he found that they were uh, the Lord and two accompanying angels. At, at any rate, they're indicating that there can be, no, there can be a surprising blessing coming from entertaining angels entertainment of strangers in our home this is so practical that i'd like to pinpoint it with a very quick good question and you have to understand and i say this often and i don't know if you believe me or not but whenever i'm standing behind the pulpit and i am speaking i am preaching and speaking to myself i am saying what i need to hear if you need to listen and if it's helpful for you praise god so I have to get that out of the way first. But here's a very, here's a question, right? A very practical question. How many of us have had a non-Christian enter our home this week? Okay, well, well let's back up uh, this month. The past year. How many of us have taken this admonition practically and seriously and done this? You see, these were things that were intended to be practical means by which we can put into practice the tremendous themes that we've been learning in the book of Hebrews. Well, that's the first thing, an open house to strangers. I think sometimes I am guilty of going, you know, hey, so-and-so never calls or so-and-so never comes over or so-and-so, you know, they just, 
And, and so many times that's about someone coming into my world of their own volition, right? Or into our program. But where am I in taking the initiative if as a Christian, as a believer, or if it's w- with, an, with other Christians as the, um, old, as the older brother who has to submit to the younger, right? That's, that's hard. That's hard. The second relationship with the world must be an open heart to the oppressed. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated since you are also in the body. This means the Christian, the believer, must not shut their eyes and ears to the needy around them. We must not be like the Levite and the Pharisee in the parable of the Good Samaritan who, out of a sense of religious concern, shut their eyes to the need of the stranger and walked by on the other side and then earned this scathing rebuke implied by Jesus. You see, Christians are to have eyes and ears and hearts open to those who are in need around them, whether in or otherwise oppressed or mistreated, and to do something about it. Here's the call to the ministry of compassion. Now, here's, here's the point I, I want to make crystal clear. I do not believe in anything that I am reading, that the New Testament gives the church warrant to issue proclamations on political problems the nation may be facing or social issues. I don't. As a body, the church, capital C, has no message to the world except the message of the gospel because that is enough. The gospel to declare the good news in Jesus Christ. But as individuals, the writer of Hebrews correctly points out that we cannot be rightly related to the God who loves all men everywhere and not show and not show this in some definite, practical and helpful way. There must be deep concern about those who are oppressed, who are troubled, who are underprivileged, who are underserved and a readiness to involve ourselves in some kind of help, not because of a political agenda, not because of some kind of justice but because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is all we need. Perhaps we need to open our eyes a good deal wider to these opportunities in our very own community and to see that there are those around us that need help. A dignitary was about to depart for France as the ambassador from the United States when someone said to him, how's your French? And he said, oh, my French is excellent, all except for the verbs. Perhaps that's true of many of us believers. We have such amazing nouns, right? Lord, friend, brother, inspiring adjectives, noble, sacred, divine, righteous. But sometimes our verbs are a little weak, meaning we have little action. But we are called to a readiness to apply in specific terms the love of God by deeds of kindness and to help those who are oppressed around us. The Christian, the believer, must have an open heart to the oppressed. Then thirdly, they must have open eyes to the dangers of life. Picking up verse 4 and 5 of chapter 13. Marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Nonconformity to the world must certainly involve these areas. Loose sexual standards 
of our generation and in any generation and the intense materialistic spirit of this age, well, they make this constant peril to us, to our hearts. We have to be aware of them. We have to realize that God has undertaken and what he has undertaken to sustain the sacredness of marriage. So we, we can't listen to the very fine-sounding uh, declarations being made today about a quote-unquote new morality, as though we had passed beyond the ancient standards and that they no longer have any significance. And then there's this danger of materialism, right? To keep our life free from the love of money, be content with what we have. This means we, must, we have to swim against really strong current, the strong current of a luxury-loving age. We had a big storm that went through, right, this past week. We were without power for about 24 hours. You would have thought that, you know, Armageddon had happened. What a first world problem. I mean, it's embarrassing how, how, um, how that affected me. 24 hours. Unbelievable. We must not give in to the pressures to keep up with the Joneses, that, that mad rush to have it all uh, that the world has around us. This does not mean that Christians should take a vow of poverty. There's nothing like that in the New Testament because it's evident that God allows certain standards of living, certain levels of prosperity differing, right? It's not a one-size-fits-all. And the writer uh, of the book points out that it's not makes the, the the point that they make excuse me is not that there's anything wrong with riches but we have to learn to be content with what god has given us contentment is not having what you want it's it's owning only what you have it's difficult to know where to draw the line between a proper increase in the standard of, li- of living and the needless luxury in which is really waste but the secret is giving in the last part of the verse For he has said, I will never fail you nor forsake you. That's the promise of God. He is our great and unending resource that will never fail us. Here's the strongest negative, if you will, in the New Testament. The original carries the thought, I will never, never under any circumstances ever leave you or forsake you. It is an incredible declaration on the basis of what the writer says we should declare. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid not afraid of loss, of poverty, of anything. What can humanity do to me? If I have God, what can man do to me? The point is, is that we must be content to take only what God gives us. So, so, so now we look at life in the body. Here's, here's the life as a Christian must live, must live out in terms of the relationship to the body of Jesus, to the body of Christ, to the church, capital C, the church, and of course, little c, Banner Christian Fellowship or wherever it is that you may be uh, plugged in into your fellowship if you're listening to this. Every believer soon discovers that they are a part of a new community, the community of the redeemed. It's kind of almost like a secret society. The members of, of that society are everywhere. And wherever we meet one, we discover we share this relationship with them that is it's sometimes it's even closer than flesh and blood family. It's true that there are a lot of divisions in the body of Jesus, but there's also this, this discoverable, this inward relationship which links all believers with, with each other. And this is what this is the life that the writer of Hebrews now describes life in that kind of body, that kind of that healthy body. The first thing we discover 
is that there is a structure of leadership within the body. Picking up chapter 13, verse 7. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their life, their way of life, and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And then verse 17, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for, for that would be of no benefit to you. So the first injunction here seems to look back to the heritage of the past, to those men and women who've died, who've left their testimony behind, whose shoulders we stand on. Maybe it refers to those who, who, uh, who, led, who led you to Christ, or who, who know you personally, who spoke the word of God to you, the writer. The writer says to them, notice the way they ended their lives and imitate their faith. And links this with this amazing declaration. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You see, what he was to the men and women of the past, he can be and is to us today. Absolutely changeless. It is this changeless Jesus, which is the great refuge of the Christian in a changing world. So as we look back to the men and women of the past, some godly Sunday school teacher or, or parent who has led us to Jesus and established us in Christ, and, and we are to imitate their faith, which was fixed, their eyes fixed on a changeless Jesus. This verse, by the way, is often misused. There are those who say because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, he must inevitably do the same in every age that he's done in the past. But remember, this verse does not say Jesus Christ does the same. He is the same. His doing may change according to times, but his character never changes. It's always the same. Life in the body of Jesus also involves a simplicity of belief. Picking up 13 Uh, Chapter 13, verse 9. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do so. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. So here the author warns against, a, against diverse and strange teachings, which are linked evidently somehow with food restrictions and kind of this external religious demands. These are, these are the food fattest, <laughs> if you will, of the first century. It refers to those who insisted that Judea, these the, the Judaistic restrictions of diet is having spiritual life. Now we have to be very frank and open about this. Although the letter, the, this letter that the writer has told us again and again that such observances are simply empty shadows. They are pointing towards something, but the something they point toward is of real value. In other words, sometimes the thing that's supposed to lead us to the thing becomes the thing when it's not the thing it's a thing to point to the thing we have an altar from which those who serve the tent in other words 
who indulge in the shadow acting have no right to eat. You see, we cannot have both the shadow and the substance. It's either one or the other. We cannot feed on the reality if we place value on the picture. We cannot have both. There's, very, there's a very sly thrust in these words, which have not benefited their listeners or their adherents in some translations. He says, look at these people who have been so concerned about form, these lean, hungry, long-faced, haunted souls who want you to get involved in restrictions of diet, etc. Look at them. They have not, they, they've not been helped by their own programs. They're no better off for their restrictions. Food does not strengthen the heart, he says, but grace does. Grace truly strengthens. And if we try to feed our heart on empty religious ordinances, then we cannot feed ourselves on the strength of God's grace. That's the whole thing. If we put value in the external, then the real can have no meaning to us. And it's illustrated in the tabernacle. Back in the days when the sin offerings were brought into the tabernacle, the priests were forbidden to eat of them. But the bodies of the sin offerings were taken outside the camp and burned there. The priest could eat of the meat of the burnt offerings and the other offerings, but not the sin offering. Those bodies were cast outside the gate and they're burned. So, so it is with Jesus when he came. He took him, they took him outside the city of Jerusalem and put him to death on a cross outside the gate. So that the, the, the religion of the world, with its emphasis on the external, is ignored by God. Humanity fulfills its proper function only after receiving what God has done in Jesus. Without any need of observances, candles, form of ceremony, but by the quiet act of faith, that is the simplicity of the belief of Jesus Christ. It's so ridiculously uncomplicated, so simple, so available to all. And yet we miss it. There's also this life in the body um, a sacrifice of service, picking up chapter 13, verse 13. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace that he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come through Jesus. Therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of, of lips that openly profess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. And then um, verse 18 and 19, pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way. I particularly urge you to pray so that I may be restored to you soon. So there again is this practical side to the sacrifice of service, which involves meekness. Let us go outside the camp like Jesus and like him, put up with misunderstanding and abuse and persecution from those who cannot see what we see in them. We so, as believers, we are so concerned with everyone's behavior of how they should act before they know Jesus. They have no motivation to act as a follower of Christ because they don't have Christ. But we so want to clean people up so they can be part of our club rather than taking to them the gospel and letting the gospel change them. So let's remember the meekness is the ability to take praise without conceit and the blame without resentment. 
It is the curriculum. It is the, it is the instruction of grace. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. Then there's a sacrifice of praise. Let us continually offer praise to God. As Paul says in Thessalonians, in everything give thanks. We must learn to gauge the spiritual life of a believer by noting the absence or presence of a complaining spirit. When we Christians complain, when I complain, then I have obviously failed to grasp the great truth that everything has been sent for a purpose. Because it says, in everything give thanks. If all I can do is gripe, grumble, groan, moan, and complain, it shows that I have failed to believe what God says is true. And the third aspect of this sharing is sharing all things in in common. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. The word is communicate or to hold all things in common. That's not communism. Communism says what's yours is mine. But what Christianity says, what's mine is God's, therefore it's yours. There is a difference. A readiness to hold all things in common for the Lord's sake. And finally, there's, there's a note on prayer. Pray for us, the apostle can say. Pray for us. Every believer needs enlightenment and empowerment. Life is too big for us to handle alone. It's too complicated, too highly structured. There are too many deceitful things about it. I am so confused. I am so easily bewildered. But prayer, see, prayer can cut through these illusions and bring understanding and perspective. And that's why Paul continually asked, pray for us. And the writer here of Hebrews says, I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you or returned to you. The final section is on life lived at the center. Hebrews 13, 20 through 21. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Nuclear subs can travel the ocean without ever coming up to the surface. The secret of this tremendous power lies in this nuclear reactor that's hidden away in the depths of the submarine. That strange, remarkable force does not need any refueling, but is constantly giving off energy. So the submarine never needs to go into a port for refueling. So it is in the life of a believer. In these two verses, it is revealed that the nuclear reactor intended for every believer. Look at the elements of this. Now, may the God of peace. In this letter, we've seen what peace is. That The nearest modern equivalent is mental health. That is what we are after, is it not? In Jesus, we, we, are, we are in touch with the God of mental health, the God who intends life to be lived on a peaceful level. With him is linked the Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. I like that phrase, the great shepherd of the sheep. Sheep are the most helpless creatures. There are two outstanding characteristics of sheep. They have no wisdom and they have no weapons. They are always running off and getting lost, unable to find their way back. And if anything attacks them, they are utterly helpless to defend themselves. It is why they need a shepherd. 
And that is why we need a shepherd and why the scripture likens us to sheep. We have a great shepherd of the sheep. He is our resource, our provision, a God who is concerned about my mental health, a great shepherd who is there to watch us because I have no wisdom and I have no weapon for defense. And linked with them is this great process that's spoken of here, who brought again from the dead by the blood of the eternal covenant. There we have the cross and the resurrection. And what these mean has been spelled out for us all throughout this letter. The cross means the end of the old life of self-reliance and the resurrection that's set forth by the power of the new life, that marvelous inner force, which is greater than any other force that the earth has ever known anything about. The mightiest demonstration of power the world has arguably ever seen was not the hydrogen bomb, but the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The hydrogen bomb can do nothing but destroy the only power the earth knows anything about that can take life and put it together again is the resurrection power of the risen Jesus. That is the power that is released within the believer, the Christian, by the indwelling Jesus within us. We talk about the conquest of of outer space, but the greatest conquest ever made was when Jesus conquered inner space by moving into the heart of man to plant power within us, the greatest power by which life can be lived, a power that heals and makes whole. The result of all of this is that God will equip us with everything good that we may do his will. That is, this is the secret of effective service. We do, we, we do not have to ask God to do this. He is there to do it, to equip us with everything good that we may do his will. So then there's really no excuse for failure, is there? There, there is a full supply here and a full ability working in us. God is going to work through us not apart from our will, but right along with it. We choose, we start out, but he is there to carry it through. Then there is full acceptance, even before it happens, working in you that which is pleasing in his sight. We know we are going to please God, and we know that we cannot help but please him when we walk in this way (coughs) and live on this basis. As Major Ian Thomas puts it, You are fighting a battle already won. But if we try to live in that self-effort of the flesh, we are fighting a battle that is already lost. Now notice this whole thing is wrapped around with the most dynamic, most revolutionary, most life-changing phrase ever uttered by humanity. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever Amen. Through Jesus Christ, that is the essence of life. That is the way God intended humanity to live. Through Jesus Christ. Paul can say in Philippians, I can do all things through Jesus Christ who strengthens me. It is beyond adequate. What a mighty gospel. What good news for right now, for this life. What good news for this present moment. God intended it for us that we might live in our present circumstances wherever we are through Jesus Christ. Amen. And God bless.